William Wordsworth was, for many, the founding father of the Romantic movement in poetry. A quiet man, he lived far from the imperial capital of London, choosing instead the majestic landscape of the Lake District. It was here, with his friend Samuel Coleridge and others, that he began to form not only a new style of poetry, but a new philosophy of poetry and art, one that sought to convey human truths, or, as he phrased it, to be emotion recollected in tranquillity. In 1798, Wordsworth and Coleridge published The Lyrical Ballads, a collection of poems that marked the beginning of what became the English Romantic movement. In this essay that prefaced the poems, Wordsworth tries to prepare his readers for this new poetry. Aware that people may not like what they hear, Wordsworth articulates his philosophy, answering the question of what it means to be a poet, and what the purpose of poetry should be. Preface to the Lyrical Ballads It is supposed that, by the act of writing in verse, an author makes a formal engagement that he will gratify certain known habits of association, that he will not only thus apprise the reader of the certain classes of ideas and expressions that will be found in the book, but that other ideas will be carefully excluded. This exponent or symbol held forth by metrical language must, in different eras of literature, have excited very different expectations. But... I am certain it will appear to many persons that I have not fulfilled the terms of an engagement that has thus been voluntarily contracted. They who have been accustomed to the gaudiness and inane phraseology of many modern writers, if they persist in reading this book to its conclusion, will, no doubt, frequently have to struggle with feelings of strangeness and awkwardness. They will look round for normal poetry, and will be induced to inquire by what species of courtesy these attempts can be permitted to assume that title of poetry. I hope, therefore, the reader will not censor me if I attempt to state what I have proposed to myself to perform, and also, as far as the limits of a preface will permit, to explain some of the chief reasons which have determined me in the choice of my purpose." that at least he may be spared any unpleasant feeling of disappointment, and that I myself may be protected from the most dishonourable accusations which can be brought against an author, namely that of an indolence which prevents him from endeavouring to ascertain what is his duty, or, when his duty is ascertained, prevents him from performing it. The principal object, then, which I proposed to myself in these poems was to choose incidents and situations from common life, and to relate or describe them throughout, as far as was possible, in a selection of language really used by men, and at the same time to throw over them a, a certain colouring of imagination, whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual way. And, further, above all, to make these incidents and situations interesting, by tracing in them, truly though not ostentatiously, the primary laws of our nature, chiefly as regards the manner in which we associate ideas in a state of excitement. Low and rustic life was generally chosen, because in that condition the essential passions of the heart find a better soil in which they can attain their maturity, they are less under restraint, and speak a plainer and more emphatic language because in that condition of life our elementary feelings coexist in a state of greater simplicity, and, consequently, 
may be accurately contemplated and more forcibly communicated, because the manners of rural life germinate from those elementary feelings and, from the necessary character of rural occupations, are more easily comprehended and are more durable, and, lastly, because in that condition the passions of men are incorporated with the beautiful and permanent forms of nature. The language, too, of these men is adopted, uh, purified indeed from what appear to be its real defects, and from all lasting and rational causes of dislike or disgust, because such men hourly communicate with the best objects from which the best part of language is originally derived, and because, from their rank in society, and the sameness and narrow circle of their intercourse, being less under the influence of social vanity, they can convey their feelings and notions in simple and unelaborated expressions. Accordingly, such a language, arising out of repeated experience and regular feelings, is a more permanent and a far more philosophical language than that which is frequently substituted for it by the poets, who think that they are conferring honour upon themselves and their art in proportion as they separate themselves from the sympathies of men, and indulge in arbitrary and capricious habits of expression in order to furnish food for fickle tastes and fickle appetites of their own creation. I cannot, however, be insensible to the present outcry against the triviality and meanness both of thought and language which some of my contemporaries have occasionally introduced into their metrical poetic compositions, and I acknowledge that this defect where it exists is more dishonourable to the writer's own character than false refinement or arbitrary innovation, though I should contend at the same time that it is far less pernicious in the sum of its consequences. From such verses, the poems in these volumes will be found distinguished at least by one mark of difference, that each of them has a worthy purpose. Not that I mean to say that I always began to write with a distinct purpose of formally conceived, but I believe that my habits of meditation have so formed my feelings as that my descriptions of such objects as strongly excite those passions will be found to carry along with them a purpose. If in this opinion I am mistaken, I can have little right to the name of a poet. For all good poetry is the spontaneous outflow of powerful feelings. But this be true. Poems to which any value can be attached were never produced on any variety of subjects but by a man who, being possessed of more than unusual organic sensibility, had also thought long and deeply. For our continued influxes of feelings are modified and directed by our thoughts, which are indeed the representatives of all our past feelings, and as by contemplating the relation of these general representatives to each other, we discover what is really important to us. So, by the repetition and continuation of this act, our feelings will be connected with important subjects, till, at length, if we be originally possessed of much sensibility, such habits of mind will be produced that, by obeying blindly and mechanically the impulses of those habits, we shall describe objects and utter sentiments of such a nature and in such connection with each other that the understanding of the being to whom we address ourselves, if he be in a healthful state of association, must necessarily be in some degree enlightened, and his affections ameliorated.
I have said that each of these poems has a purpose. I have also informed my reader what this purpose will be found principally to be, namely to illustrate the manner in which our feelings and ideas are associated in a state of excitement. But, speaking in language somewhat more appropriate, it follows the fluxes and refluxes of the mind when agitated by the great and simple affections of our nature. Now, taking up the subject then that is upon the general grounds, I ask, what is meant by the word poet? What is a poet? To whom does he address himself, and what language is to be expected from him? He is a man speaking to men. A man, it is true, imbued with more lively sensibility, more enthusiasm and tenderness, who has a greater knowledge of human nature and a more comprehensive soul than are supposed to be common among mankind. A man, a person, pleased with his own passions and volitions, and who rejoices more than other men or people in the spirit of life that he is in, delighting to contemplate similar volitions and passions as manifested in the goings-on of the universe, and habitually impelled to create them where he does not find them. To these qualities he has added a disposition to be more affected than other men by absent things as if they were present, an ability of conjuring up in himself passions which are indeed far from being the same as those produced by real events, yet, especially in those parts of the general sympathy which are pleasing and delightful, do more nearly resemble the passions produced by real events than anything which, from the motions of their minds merely, other men are accustomed to feel in themselves. Whence, and from practice, he has acquired a greater readiness and power in expressing what he thinks and feels, and especially those thoughts and feelings which by his own choice, or from the structure of his own mind, arise in him without immediate external excitement. But, whatever proportion of this faculty we may suppose even the greatest poet to possess, there cannot be a doubt but that the language which it will suggest to him must, in liveliness and in truth, fall far short of that which is uttered by men in real life, under the actual pressure of those passions, certain shadows of which the poet thus produces, or feels to be produced, in himself. However exalted a notion we would wish to cherish of the character of a poet, it is obvious that, while he describes and imitates passions, his situation is altogether slavish and mechanical compared with the freedom and power of real and substantial action and suffering, so that it will be the wish of the poet to bring his feelings near to those of the persons whose feelings he describes, nay, for short spaces of time perhaps, to let himself slip into an entire delusion, and even confound and identify his own feelings with theirs, modifying only the language which is thus suggested to him by a consideration that he describes for a particular purpose, that of giving pleasure. Here, then, he will apply the principles on which I have so much insisted, namely that of selection. On this, he will depend for removing what would otherwise be painful or disgusting in passion. He will feel there is no necessity to trick out or to elevate nature, And, the more industriously he applies this principle, the deeper will be his faith that no words which his fancy or imagination can suggest will be compared 
with those which are the emanations of reality and truth. I have said that poetry is the spontaneous outflow of powerful feelings. Poetry takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. The emotion is contemplated until, by a species of reaction, the tranquility gradually disappears and an emotion, kindred to that which was before the subject of contemplation, is gradually produced and does itself actually exist in the mind. In this mood, successful composition generally begins, and in a mood similar to this it is carried on, but the emotion of whatever kind and in whatever degree from various causes is qualified by various pleasures, so that in describing any passions whatsoever which are voluntarily described, the mind will upon the whole be in a state of enjoyment. Now, if nature be thus cautious in preserving in a state of enjoyment a being thus employed, the poet ought to profit by the lesson thus held forth to him and ought especially to take care that whatever passions he communicates to his reader, those passions, if his reader's mind be sound and vigorous, should always be accompanied with an overbalance of pleasure.